Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and this morning what I would like to do is what I've done in the past whenever we have a special Wednesday night uh, series, sermon series uh, coming up. I like to uh, provide a corporate uh, kickoff or a corporate launch, if you will. Uh, maybe uh, provide a little bit of a, a teaser trailer uh, that will make you want to come uh, to that series because you're not uh, always in the habit of uh, coming on Wednesday nights. And so uh, this is uh, hopefully going to be some incentive this morning, um, kind of uh, hopefully an encouraging little prod uh, to say, man, I, I want to I come this summer to this summer super study and hear more about these parables uh, that maybe you might be very familiar with, or maybe uh, you've never heard a series on the parables. Um, but uh, for what it's worth this morning, I thought it would be helpful for us just to take a, a quick break from the book of Daniel, let our minds rest a little bit from last week's math word problem, right? You, your head's kind of still spinning like mine is from last week. But um, just to look at one of the simple stories that Jesus shared and uh, the eternal lesson that uh, he wanted to, uh, us to learn from this. And, and again, this hopefully will serve as a, as a springboard for uh, this coming Wednesday and, and for the rest of the seven weeks um, in our summer super study. And so I'd like to read this morning the parable of the sower as it's titled in my Bible, but I think it's more appropriately called, uh, should be called the parable of the soils, as we'll see um, in a moment. But let's begin reading in Luke chapter 8. Uh, starting in verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root, they believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now this is normally where you stop reading when it comes to the parable of the sower or the soils, but I want to continue reading the next few verses because I think that Luke uh, intentionally packaged uh, these two parables and a story together to make one point, and I think you'll figure it out as I continue to read. Verse 16, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, not anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your son in these simple everyday stories that reveal a profound eternal truth. And I pray this morning as we look into these 
the mysteries, if you will, that you, that Jesus talked about, that your spirit would make them clear to us, it would be very plain to us what you meant by this story that Jesus told, and that we would walk out of here this morning impacted, changed, different, uh, ready to um, be more of who you want us to be as a result of our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, there are a number of places in the Bible where the power and productiveness of God's Word is described using agricultural imagery, and particularly likened to the process of growing crops. Uh, Probably one of the most familiar verses in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. It says this, quote, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, we know a little bit about the rain coming down from heaven, don't we, in the last couple of weeks, and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall return to me, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. In other words, when, whenever God sends forth rain, it does not or it does exactly what he designed it to do. It it succeeds in watering the earth, which causes things to grow and produces things for us to eat. In the same way, whenever God sends forth his word, it does what he designed it to do. It succeeds in watering people's hearts, which causes them to grow and produce fruit in their lives. Not one drop of rain falls in vain, and neither does one word from God. Both the rain... And the word always accomplish the purpose for which God sends them forth. And at times, God sovereignly ordains storms for the purpose of destroying crops and ending lives rather than growing crops and preserving lives. And even so, God sovereignly ordains sermons for the purpose of hardening hearts and judging lives rather than saving and sanctifying them. And so the result of precipitation and the results of exposition are under the sovereign control of God who does whatever he wants with both storms and sermons. Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. In other words, Paul understood that the people that sat under his preaching would respond in one of two ways. And some of those people would end up going to heaven and others would end up going to hell. And that's the ministry of the word. And so how the word of God works and the growth it causes and the fruit that it produces in a person's life ultimately depends on the sovereign purposes of God. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul said this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Again, it's God's work, ultimately. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's not any other preacher's work or Sunday school teacher's work or equipping our instructor's work. It's the, it's the work of God. Nevertheless, having said all that, from a human perspective, how God's word impacts our lives also depends on the preparedness of our hearts, or in agricultural terms, the condition of the ground. And whenever the word of God is is preached, it's like the preacher is, is throwing out seed. And what happens to that seed depends on the condition of the soil on which it lands, And apart from God's sovereignty, the reason all of us will respond differently to this sermon in particular is because you all have a different heart. It's interesting. We're all going to hear the same exact sermon this morning, 
but we're all not going to have the same exact response. And how a person responds to the preaching of God's word ultimately reveals the condition of their hearts. And when it comes down to it, listening is more about your heart than your ears. We typically think about listening with with these things, but it's really listening with with your heart. This was unforgettably illustrated for me in the first church I pastored when I moved to Texas. I was warned before coming that I was likely going to have a fight on my hands and obviously made me leery about actually coming and taking the position. And one man in particular wanted to encourage me and alleviate my fear of walking into a, a potential hornet's nest. And so he emailed me and said this. This was his email. He said, quote, Paul's pattern was to go to a city, start a riot and go to jail. We'll try to keep you out of jail. I wasn't quite sure if that was uh, good advice or not. I appreciated the sentiment. Well, I came, and sure enough, it didn't take long for a riot to break out in the church. And one of the first indicators that the church was heading for a, a train wreck was the conflicting responses that I got, I got from people based on my sermons. And I'll never forget one sermon uh, one Sunday in particular when I was standing by the back door greeting people as they were leaving, and, and someone came up to me and enthusiastically reached out and shook my hand and said, said, Pastor, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And at the very same moment, I saw out of the corner of my eye a group of folks huddled in the corner of the foyer who weren't uh, particularly happy with me, and um, according to what was reported to me later, they were discussing how that was the worst sermon they'd ever heard. And as the church became more and more polarized in the months to follow, it was that particular incident that provided me the comfort and the confidence that I needed to persevere through those challenging times. Why? Because it was, those, it was a diametrically opposed response to the same exact sermon. And that allowed me to, to maintain a proper perspective as to what was really going on, not so much in the church, but in people's hearts. And I realized that God had providentially placed me in the lead role of a 21st century version of the parable of the soils. And so as I continued to cast the seed of God's word through the sermons that I preached, it landed on different types of of soils and produced various responses. And some just openly rejected it. Others merely put up with it. And others ate it up like they couldn't get enough of it. And so the moral of the story is is, is simply this. You can tell what's in a person's heart by how they respond to the preaching of God's word. Why? Because a person's response to God's word depends on the condition of their heart. That's the moral of the story, the lesson, if you will, that, that, that Jesus wanted to get across here in the story of the sower, the seed, and the soils. This is, by the way, one of the few parables that's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. More importantly, it's the first parable recorded in all three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which implies that it was the first parable that Jesus ever told. In essence, it served as the the gateway uh, to the rest of the parables. I'm about to tell you some parables, and this was like the door you had to walk through this particular parable. It, It really set the foundation on which all the other parables were built. In fact, Mark went as far as to say in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, that if you don't understand this parable, you won't be able to understand any of the other parables he told. Well, before I unpack this parable, I want to take a moment, I think it's important that we understand what a parable was and why Jesus used them in his teaching. Uh, He told, by the way, at least that are recorded, some 40 or so parables, lots of them. And those are the only ones that are recorded. There could have been more. But we have to ask ourselves, what is a parable? Well, a parable is, is a story taken from everyday life that explained and illustrated a spiritual truth. Literally, the word parable means to place alongside. 
And so you have a simple, common example placed alongside or placed next to a, a difficult spiritual truth that's hard to understand in order to make it easier to understand. It's using the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. And so the subtitle of this summer super study series is really simple everyday stories, profound eternal lessons. And the goal of our series, I wrote this purpose statement down, is to help people appreciate and apply the profound eternal lessons revealed through the simple everyday stories that Jesus told. And so a parable is is a simple everyday story that was used or told to illustrate or explain a profound eternal lesson. Now, the second question we should ask is, okay, I understand what a parable is, but why did Jesus tell parables? Well, he says very clearly here in verse 9, notice um, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant, and he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so we have here really a twofold purpose for parables. Parables were intended to reveal truth to true believers and to conceal truth from unbelievers. To reveal truth to believers and to conceal truth to unbelievers. And he talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of God, the divine secrets that that are only understood by divine illumination. These are things that we could not know on our own unless God revealed them to us And he chose to reveal these things to us through parables. Turn over to Matthew 13 quickly with me. Matthew 13. And in uh, in Matthew's account of this parable, he offers an expanded explanation, if you will, of why Jesus told parables. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. We just read that in in Luke. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9 where God was confronting the nation of Israel for willfully rejecting the words of the prophet Isaiah. They purposely closed their ears and and, and their eyes to the truth. They didn't want to see or hear the truth. And so God obscured the truth and concealed it from them. It's a scary thought, isn't it? John Piper has written a great little article called Take Care How You Listen. And he says this, quote, this teaches us, talking about this parable, this teaches us something very important about preaching. Even when preaching the word of God does not soften and save and heal, it is not necessarily ineffective. This preaching of the word may be doing God's terrible work of judgment. It may be hardening people and making the earth so dull that they will never want to hear again. And then he gives this exhortation. He says, don't be cavalier in the hearing of God's word week after week. If it is not softening and saving and healing and bearing fruit, it is probably hardening and blinding and dulling. In other words, God's word never returns void. It's always accomplishing something. It's either hardening you 
or it's healing you. It's helping you. Uh, You've heard the analogy that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so you may be thinking, well, you know, uh, I, I, I sit through sermon after sermon after sermon, and sometimes I don't get anything out of it. I don't know that it's really accomplishing anything in my heart. Well, if you don't sense that the Word of God is helping you, then it may very well be hardening you. And so we need to be, this is very important that we understand what Jesus was, was wanting to get across here from this parable. Jesus was aware here that there were people that were listening to him that were doing the same thing as the Israelites had done to Isaiah. They, and so what did he do? He, he obscured the truth and he concealed it from them. And parables, in one sense, were a punishment against unbelief. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so Jesus knew that not everyone in that growing crowd that was following him truly believed in him. And so he used parables as a way to flush out genuine believers and and run off the casual onlookers who were just kind of going along for the ride. And when he told a parable, those who were genuinely seeking the truth understood it, or at least in part, and they would follow up with him and ask him to explain it further. Whereas the uncommitted spectator didn't have a clue what he was talking about and wouldn't bother to ask him to explain it later. And so Jesus wanted to divide the crowd to separate those who were truly committed to him and from those who weren't. And the best way to do that was through, through parables. And so the first parable that, that Jesus told here, and again, it's best referred to, I think, better referred to as the story of the soils, as I've titled it uh, in our outline this morning, um, this really laid the foundation for all the other parables. And, and unlike many of the other parables that Jesus would eventually tell, he provided a, a very clear, detailed interpretation or explanation of this parable. In other words, there's no mystery in this parable. He's told us exactly what every detail of this parable means. There's no reason for us to walk away scratching our head going, I wonder what that meant. He never left us to figure it out on our own. And so we know right off the bat that the sower is Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 13, verse 37, he, he likens uh, the sower to the Son of Man, Jesus. I think in By way of application, it could be anyone who preaches the word of God. The sower is the one throwing out the seed of the word of God. The seed is the word of God. It says that in verse 11. The seed is the word of God. You can't miss that. And the soil, which is obviously the main focus of this parable, it's not so much on the sower, not so much on the seed, but the bulk of the time, it talks about the different kinds of soil, and the soil on which the seed falls is the human heart. We know that because it says it very specifically in verse 12, those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their what? Their heart. Verse 15, but the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good what? Heart. And the entire parable is all about hearing and responding to or receiving, if you will, the preaching of God's word. Look at verse 8. As he said these things, he would call out. In other words, it sounds like the implication, he, he would call out more than once. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 18, so take care how you what? Listen. And then verse 21, but he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who what? Hear the word of God and do it. There's an obvious theme here that Luke was developing. Again, I mentioned this earlier that I think Luke, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, packaged these parables and these conversations to emphasize the importance that Jesus placed on hearing the word of God or receiving the word of God. Now, to us, this may not appear at first as a simple story uh, because we don't live in an agricultural community or a culture like uh, the hearers in this uh, day and age did, but 
agriculture was at the heart of Jewish life. This was the way they provided for themselves and made a living. And, and so they understood, everyone understood the process of growing crops because they all had crops. It wasn't just a few folks that, that were adventurous enough, venturesome enough to have a garden in their backyard like some of us have. Not me, but I know some of you have. But they all had crops. And, and so how did that work? Well, a farmer would drape a bag of seeds over his shoulder and would walk through a field and he would throw handfuls of seed on the ground. In fact, it was likely that from where the crowd was sitting, as they heard this parable, they could actually see farmers sowing seed. It may have been that Jesus said and, and even pointed them over to this direction. You know, there was a sower in the field, and he sowed the seed, and there was four, and, and he was up pointing them over to a field, and this was actually going on while he was telling the story. And everyone understood that some of the seed that was being thrown out was landing along the path between the fields. Some was landing on top of the um, rocky soil, if you will. Some was landing among some weeds or thorns, and some was landing on, on fertile soil. And so Jesus used these four kinds of soil to illustrate four kinds of hearts on which the preach word lands. Some people have a, a stubborn, unreceptive heart. Some have a shallow, superficial heart. Some have a, a worldly, strangled heart. Some have a, a soft, receptive heart. And by the time we're done here in a few minutes, you're going to know what kind of heart you have. Okay? So look for your kind of heart. Which one of these four soils uh, best represents the way you typically respond to the preaching of God's Word. So let's look this morning at four heart responses to God's Word. Four heart responses to God's Word. Number one, we see the road soil, which represents a, a stubborn heart. Look at verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Now, the land of Palestine in those days was, was covered with fields. It still is in large degree today. Um, there, are, there are very few walls or fences. They, the only thing that separated one field from another were paths. And so they served as the boundaries, and, and the dirt on those paths obviously was packed down as, as hard as concrete from all the travelers and all the, the workers that would go in between the fields, and so the seed couldn't penetrate that, that soil. People would walk on it, or birds would swoop down and, and eat it up. Well, Jesus goes on to explain exactly what this represents. Look at verse 12. He says, the, word of, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Again, this represents a person with a hard, unreceptive heart towards God's word. There's, there, there's lots of people, obviously, who fit into this category. They're, they're, they're either completely ignorant of the word or indifferent to the word. Uh, the Bible um, is irrelevant to them. The church is irrelevant to them. Um, some people with this kind of heart may actually show up to church every Sunday. But they could care less about what's being said from the pulpit uh, or what comes from the Word. They're disinterested, they're distracted, they're bored with the preaching. The sermon just goes in one ear and out the other. It bounces off their cold, hard heart like seed off of concrete. You say, how does a person's heart get that way? Well, I think the reason their heart is so hard towards the Word, so hard that the Word doesn't penetrate it, is because it's been packed down by sin. Their hearts have been trampled over by an army of sinful thoughts and actions and, and words. And, and as the Scripture says, they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, or their heart has become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. And their ears are, are plugged up with all sorts of filthiness and wickedness, James chapter 1, verse 21. We'll look at that as we close this morning. And so consequently, their, their heart is totally unreceptive and unresponsive to the preaching of God's word. Their heart shows no sorrow for their sin, no guilt, no true brokenness or repentance, no concern for God or other people. And so what happens? Satan is like a, a ravenous 
vulture hovering over their hearts, waiting eagerly to just pluck up the seed of God's word as soon as it lands so that they may not believe and be saved. That's the bottom line. Satan does not want you to believe. He does not want you to be saved. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel. He wants you to remain an unbeliever. And so he hardens your heart. Or I should say he takes advantage of you hardening your heart. The question is, does that describe your heart? Do you have a stubborn, unreceptive heart? Well, let's look at the second heart response to the preaching of God's word. We have the rocky soil, which I believe represents a superficial heart, a superficial heart. Look at verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, this is not referring to soil with rocks in it, because farmers cultivated their fields and they removed the rocks, and sometimes the boundaries were not just uh, paths, but they were rock walls, and you see that often uh, back in New England, a lot of those uh, rock walls that were there were just uh, farmers clearing their fields and then using them as makeshift borders. What this is talking about, in Israel, there's a a layer of limestone that runs through the land, and in some places, it juts to the surface where where it's just only covered by a few inches of topsoil. In in Mark, chapter 4, verse 5, uh, it says this, that uh, the way Jesus explains this is that it, it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. So the idea here is that, that the seed would, would, would hit that soil and sink into that shallow soil and begin to put down roots, but because the soil wasn't deep enough, the, the roots would, would hit the rock and the plant would have no other place to grow but where? To go back up. And so it would grow up faster and, and produce more foliage than the rest of the crop, but it also wilted faster too because the roots couldn't get enough moisture and it would shrivel up and die before producing any fruit. Well, what does this represent? Well, look at verse 13. Jesus said, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. This represents someone who, maybe you could say impulsively, but nevertheless enthusiastically responds to the preaching of God's word, to a message they hear, but they never consider the cost. They, they respond to the gospel with instant excitement, but they don't understand the significance of what it means to commit themselves to follow Jesus Christ. It says they have no firm root. They have a shallow, weak commitment. It says they, they believe for a while. This is a, somebody that has a short-term commitment. Their faith is short-lived. In Mark chapter 4, verse 17, it says they're only temporary. And in times of temptation, they fall away. Mark 4, again, says in times of affliction or persecution. And so when they suffer mistreatment for professing faith in Christ, maybe they lose their family or they lose some friends or they lose a job or maybe they have a falling out with someone in the church and they end up leaving the church or they they, they face a challenging trial in their life, they they, they punt their faith. In other words, they're fair-weather Christians. I know people like this. They've been some of the greatest disappointments in my ministry. They come running up after a sermon, um, tell me how convicted they are, and they seem really broken. They, have, they, they may even have tears in their eyes, and they, they make a profession of faith in Christ, and they're all excited about reading their Bibles and, and praying and coming to the church. And, and man, they're, they're on fire. They, they boldly speak out where, whenever they get a chance. And, and honestly, they put some of us who have been walking with the Lord for years to shame because of how bold they are and their zeal. And they seem genuine, and they look so real. But as soon as they're required to to really take a stand for Christ or pay the price for being a Christian, the the emotional high quickly fades away. And as soon as the trials or or temptations may come, they they fall back into their old lifestyle and 
and you never see him again. You're like, what happened? We bumped into someone just this weekend and we're so happy to see them and, and we hadn't seen them for years and just we could tell just from interacting, my wife and I interacting with them that they probably weren't in a good place spiritually. And, and we just, he, he, he walked away and we thought, man, what, what's up with that? And I thought about that individual when I was looking at this particular soil, this, this rocky soil that, man, sprung up really quick and, man, made some great strides in, in his walk with the Lord and, and then he's nowhere to be found. And when I asked where he was attending church and he said, well, that's just really not for me. And I, I didn't, obviously didn't do that to him, but that's what I was thinking in my mind and how, how sad that was to me that, that if you say church just isn't for me, well, that's maybe because you aren't for the church. In other words, they left us because they were never what? One of us. It may be that, that if you're a true Christian, there's only one place you want to be, and that's with God's people in the church, right? And uh, you're even willing to put up with an imperfect church. And an imperfect pastor, an imperfect brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Because you love Christ and you love his church. And you're able to look past all that stuff. And, 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 and it's not that, oh, I really connect with these people because we have all the same, uh, you know, interests and, and goals. And, 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 and we get along because of, you know, we live in the same neighborhoods. Our kids are the same age. And we have all these things in common. Listen, the only reason we should get along in this room is because of Jesus Christ. That's what draws us together. And so when I hear a person that's professing Christ, faith in Christ, saying he doesn't connect with the church, not just our church, but the church in general, I'm thinking maybe he's missing Christ because that's the only thing that connects us is Christ. And so the question is, does that describe your heart? Do you have a, a shallow, superficial heart? Well, there's a third type of soil. It's the thorny soil, and I think this represents a strangled heart. A strangled heart. Look at verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. So this is soil that maybe looks good on the surface, but below the surface there's a vicious web of weeds and thistles that were just waiting to, to grow up around the plant. And as you know, if you have spent any time gardening, that, that weeds grow bigger and faster than the plants. Some of you got some... Some, some awesome growth going in your garden. It's all green, but most of it's all weeds. And you got to get out there and you got to pull out those weeds. Why? Because the big leaves of the weeds shade the plants from the sun and their strong roots soak up all the moisture and leave none for the plant. And so consequently, the plant gets choked out or strangled to death before it's able to produce any fruits. And in Mark chapter 4, it says, in fact, it yielded no crop. Matthew and Mark both, says, both say it becomes unfruitful. You say, well, what is this talking about? Well, look at verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. Notice, it's all about hearing. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So Jesus says this weedy soil, thorny soil, describes a person who receives the word, but their heart and their mind are so preoccupied with the things of the world that the gospel just gets crowded out and chokes to death. And it doesn't die right away necessarily, but it gradually withers away. It dies a, a slow death. And notice that the text mentions three things in particular that choke out the word in a person's life. As they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. What are the worries of this life? Well, it's the cares, it's the pressures of life. It's the, it's the things that tend to make us worry, our family, our, 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 our friends, our school, our job, our finances, our health, etc. The worries of life just consume us. What about the riches? Well, it's just talking about the, the money, the clothes, the houses, the cars, the boats, the jet skis, you fill in the blank, right? It's just all that stuff that, that tends to distract us from the Lord. And then there's the desires, it says here, or the pleasures of this life. Not, not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll stuff, 
but maybe good things like sports and academics or hobbies that take time and energy and money away from the Lord. Legitimate pursuits, if you will. Putting your kid in some kind of athletic event or you know, some kind of uh, you know, thing you want them to excel in and yet it becomes, it, it becomes all-consuming and it, and it begins to control your schedule. And so these three things, the worries, the riches, the desires, they compete with Christ for our loyalty and, and affection. And too often, Christ loses. I see this happen all the time. And it makes me, makes me sad. Someone makes a profession of faith in Christ, and, but then some other person or, or thing, a relationship, a career, a, a goal, or some material thing becomes more important to them and Christ gets pushed aside. They start coming less and less. They start reading their Bibles less and less. They start praying less and less. They become less and less committed to Christ, all because they allow themselves to get interested in worldly things, and then distracted by worldly things, then preoccupied with worldly things, then consumed with worldly things, and obsessed with worldly things, and then choked out and strangled to death by the things of the world. Demas would be a good example of this. 2 Timothy 4.10, it says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. There are plenty of people, right, throughout history who have deserted Christ because of a love for the world. The question is, does this describe your heart? Do you have a worldly heart, a heart that's preoccupied with or strangled by the things of the world? Well, you ready for some good news? It's the fourth soil, the good soil, which I think represents a soft heart, a soft heart. Notice verse 8. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. So this is, this is soft, deep, rich, free of thorns and weeds soil, which resulted in the seed growing up and producing a, a bumper crop a hundred times more than was planted. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of fruit. You say, well, what does this represent? Well, look at verse 15. The seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. These are the people that, according to Matthew, hear and understand the word. According to Mark, hear and accept the word. Bottom line is that they they listen with an open, receptive heart. And they don't just listen, they hold it fast. They don't just seek to understand what it means, but they strive to obey it. They they, they want to put it into practice in their life. They don't want to just be merely hearers of the word, they want to be doers, as it says in James 1.22. And it says they bear fruit with perseverance. In other words, they're continually producing, or the word is continually producing results in their life that stick. In other words, you see true lasting change happening as a result of sitting under the teaching of God's Word. I love the example of the Thessalonians. Paul commended them and he thanked them in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He said, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word which you heard from us, and this is what this parable is all about, it's about receiving the word of God. It's a lesson about receiving the word. And he says, man, I was so grateful that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, and here it is, which also performs its work in you who believe. In other words, if you're a true believer here this morning, God's word is at work in your heart right this moment. How cool is that? And it's producing the results that he's intended for this sermon in your life to help you be more of who he wants you to be. And so we just need to understand 
a very basic principle of Scripture, and that is this. Every genuine believer will consistently bear spiritual fruit in their lives. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that if you're Spirit-filled, you have the Spirit of God in you, it will consistently, the Spirit of God is not you producing the fruit, it's the Spirit of God who's doing the work in your life. And, he, and the Spirit of God produces, uses the Word, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are just, just one list of nine potential fruits that we should see in our lives as Christians. Now, having said that, I would say this, that it is possible, I believe it's possible for a Christian to backslide and fall away from Christ for a time. I think that's possible. But if they're truly saved, they will eventually come back to Christ and bear the appropriate fruit of repentance. That's what the scripture teaches. In other words, there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that all Christians are as fruitful as others. There are some of you who produce a lot of fruit, or the Spirit of God is producing a lot of fruit. There's others of you that it's a little harder to see the fruit. The issue is not the amount of fruit in your life, but the presence of it. Do you get that? It's not the amount of it, it's the presence of it. And the presence of fruit is the only thing that sets the good soil apart from the other three soils. In other words, fruit is the only way to tell the difference between these four, four types of soils. And it's the only way that you can tell what kind of heart you have. Fruit's the only thing that sets a, a Christian apart from a non-Christian. And so consequently, fruit is the best way to distinguish a true Christian from a so-called Christian. Someone who says they're a Christian or thinks they're a Christian, but really isn't a Christian. Matthew 7, 16, Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Fruits. And so based on the fruit, only one of these four soils represents someone who's truly saved. Now don't miss this. Don't think, well, you know, I'm I might be a little like that thorny guy or a little bit like that rocky soil. Well, listen carefully. If you'll know them by their fruits and the only soil that produced any fruit is the good soil, then that means the good soil is the only one that represents a true believer. You say, well, what what about the other soils? Well, I would say the road, road soil represents a rejecter. Someone that just rejects the gospel, doesn't want anything to do with about, about it. Well, you say, what about the rocky and the thorny soil? Well, that may very well represent a pretender. Someone who's kind of in the church and going along with the motions, and, 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 and yet they're really not listening. They're really not applying what they're hearing, and, and they're really not growing. They're just kind of going along for the ride. Whereas the good soil represents a believer. I'm not the only one who takes this interpretation. Listen to Warren Wearsby, uh, someone I really have grown to trust and respect over the years. He says this, quote, it's important to note that none of these first three hearts underwent salvation. The proof of salvation is not listening to the word or having a quick emotional response to the word or even cultivating the word so it grows in a life. The proof of salvation is fruit, end quote. John 15, 8, Jesus said, God is glorified when you bear much fruit and prove that you are my disciples. So I ask you, did this describe your heart? Do you have a soft, receptive heart that produces fruit of a true believer? Now again, that's maybe the end of the parable of the soils, but... Luke, I think, intentionally tacked on another parable, the parable of the lamp, to emphasize, again, the importance of hearing and obeying God's word. And he switches the analogy in verses 16 and 17 from fruit to light. Notice in verse 16, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. In other words, a fruitful life serves as a powerful light or witness to unbelievers. They see your good works, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and they glorify 
your Father in heaven. And then we get to the punchline, verse 18, so take care how you listen. Pay attention. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. In other words, how you listen will determine whether you will be given more. The good soul kept producing more and more and more and more, whereas the road and the rocky and the thorny soil, they, what they had was taken away. It went away. And in each case, what they thought they had was taken away by the devil, by trials, and by the world. But notice how Luke ends this section telling us about a conversation that was had between Jesus and some, some of his family members. His mother and brothers came to him and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd and it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Who are his brothers, his mother, his brothers? In other words, the people who are my family, my true family, my true spiritual family is what he was talking about. Those who are truly saved. Bottom line, the ultimate evidence that you're a Christian is that you hear and obey God's word. That's the ultimate evidence that you're saved. Again, John Piper in his little article, so uh, take care how you listen, he says this, hearing is huge. (laughs) Hearing is huge. He said, I believe with all my heart that I'm called to preach the word of God, but this text is about another great calling, the calling to hear the word of God. And it is no small thing. The stakes are very high. There is hearing that barely gets started, and the word is gone before you get, on to, before you get out the door. There's a hearing that lasts until there is a hard time in life, and then one turns from God to other messages. There is a hearing that flourishes until the riches and pleasures of this life choke it off, and there is a hearing that defeats the devil, endures trial, scorns riches, and bears fruit unto eternal life. Does that type of hearing characterize your life? Beloved, in order for the seed of God's word to plant itself deep in our hearts so it flourishes and produces fruit in our lives, then the soil of our hearts must be properly prepared. I mean, let's be honest. Even as Christians, at times, our hearts may become hardened to the word. Isn't that what Hebrews chapter 3 talks about? Being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so they need to be harrowed to make them ready to receive the word. You say, what are you talking about? Harrowed. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, the prophet says, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. This was the call of the prophet. Hey, listen, Israel, break up the clods in your heart. Run a harrow through your heart. Soften that stuff up, break that stuff up, soften that stuff up, get it all ready to, to, be, to, to receive the seed. And that was fallow ground was land that had, had been plowed but not seeded or uh, you know, either to allow weeds to die or, or to make the soil richer. It just had lain idle. It was uncultivated. It was unproductive. And, and so it was, it was hard. It was really useless. And before anything could be planted, it needed to be broken up and softened to be ready to receive the word of God. And I'm sure most of you have seen that dynamic here in Texas. You've seen a, a, a tractor pulling a thing called a harrow. And it's just got these big old discs on the back, and it just kind of breaks up all the plowed ground, those big chunks, and it makes it nice and smooth and ready to plant. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, one other passage quickly as we close. James chapter 1. James gives us just a handful of of ways that we can harrow our hearts so it's ready to receive God's word. The context of James chapter 1 is being receptive to God's word. Same exact point as Jesus' parable of the soils. But notice what he says here in the context of receiving God's word. Verse 19, this is James chapter 1 verse 19. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren... 
But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. And so what are the things that he's telling us here? Well, number one, quietly maintain a teachable heart toward the word. That's what verses 19 and 20 are talking about. Quietly maintain a teachable heart toward the word of God. Don't protest. Don't always have to to talk and, and, and tell everybody what you know. Just humbly listen and be teachable. Don't argue with the word. Just be humble and teachable. Verse 21 Constantly cleanse your heart of what hinders the word. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That, that, that the prerequisite for hearing the word is you need to confess sin. That word filthiness there, interesting, was the word, the medical term for earwax. So you got to get the Q-tip of confession out, right? And, and clean out your ears when you come to church having confessed your sin. Number three, you need to humbly submit your heart to the word of God. He says here, with humility, verse 21, in humility, receive the word implanted. So you just just to humbly submit to the heart, your heart to the word of God. Just have a, a humble, submissive heart to the scriptures. Just, just live in submission to the scriptures. Number four, gladly throw open the door of your heart to the word. That's what he's saying here with humility or in humility, receive the word implanted. This is like uh, just being hospitable. You're, you're welcoming the word of God into your heart. You, you, you come ex- with anticipation and you're just like, you got the doors wide open. You're totally open to what the Lord wants to say to you or speak to you through his word on any given Sunday. And then finally, you need to truly understand in your heart the gravity of the word. The gravity of the word, he says, which is able to save your soul. That's a serious matter. That's a sobering thought. That, that what's going on here this morning, even as Paul said, when, when, when he, whenever he went to preach, he, he could smell the He could feel the breezes of heaven and smell the the flames and and the smoke of hell, the the aroma of life to life and death to death. This is an eternal matter. Whenever the word of God is preached, you're you're either being saved or you're being damned. There's no middle ground. You're either being helped or you're being hardened. This is a grave matter. And so you come understanding the gravity of the word of God. I just think these are some, some simple ways that, that by God's grace, you can harrow your heart in preparation for the hearing of the word of God. And James gives us some great instruction. And then, of course, he goes on in verse 22 and says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's not enough to, to have heard the sermon. The question you should walk away with is, so what? So what? What am I going to do about that? And I would encourage you just, just on any given Sunday, any Wednesday, anytime you hear a message on the radio, driving to work, and just train yourself to just think of one thing that you want to work on, one thing you can change as a result of the sermon you hear. Don't get into the habit of just letting sermons go in one ear and out the other and go, man, that was a great sermon. Man, did you hear that sermon by Piper? Man, that was awesome. Did you hear that sermon by MacArthur or R.C. Sproul? And lots, lots of times we praise the sermon and, or the preacher, but we're like, so what are you going to do? How is your life going to change as a result of hearing that sermon? And so we got to be careful that we're training ourselves to always respond, not just to be merely hearers who delude ourselves as if listening to lots of sermons is spiritual, not necessarily, if they're not changing your life. It'd be better for you to listen to one sermon a month and have it make an impact in your life than listen to a sermon a day and have no change, is the point. Well, this is just a taste of what we're going to get a chance to, to see and hear on Wednesday nights. This is just one of a number of parables that we're going to tackle, and I'm looking forward to this Wednesday. I'm going to be preaching on the, the parable of the buried treasure and that pearl of great price. I've never preached on that passage before. 
And I'm really excited about that this Wednesday. It'll be a great kickoff. So we'll look forward to seeing you here uh, this Wednesday. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that powerfully accomplishes your saving and sanctifying work in our lives. We would just ask you, even beg of you, that you would cultivate in us a soft, humble, teachable, moldable heart so that whenever the seed of your word gets thrown in our direction, it sinks deep down into our hearts and grows up to produce much fruit. For your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.